Lyme disease is on the move and it's spreading into places where it's never been before. It's now in Canada, Russia, and China, where cold winters used to kill these ticks. It brings up the important question, is Lyme disease spreading with the help of global climate change? On this podcast of Looking at Lyme, we're going to speak to an author who's written a book about this very fascinating subject. Mary Beth Pfeiffer has been an investigative journalist for three decades. She lives in New York State along the Hudson River, and she has seen firsthand what Lyme disease can do to people. Lyme in the eastern United States is an epidemic, and she cites climate as one of the main culprits for the spread. Pfeiffer writes in her book, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change, and I'm quoting here, Over a period of four years, I studied the policies, paper trail, and scientific literature. And she came to the conclusion that Lyme disease is, indeed, made much worse because of a shifting climate. She joins us now from New York State. Hello, Mary Beth, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sarah. As a journalist, what first grabbed your attention about Lyme disease in New York State? Well, I live in what is perhaps uh, among the most um, uh, busy, if you will, areas for Lyme disease in the world. Uh, we actually have uh, probably the highest rates uh, that have been recorded for Lyme disease in some of our particular counties in the Mid-Hudson Valley, which is where I'm located, and that would be about 100 miles north of New York City. So Lyme disease certainly was something that was always on my radar. I was an investigative reporter for many years. I didn't view it, however, as an investigative story, which is why it took me, you know, some uh, 25 years uh, after the emergence of the illness in the Hudson Valley to really dig deep into it. Um, So the short answer is there was a lot of Lyme disease around. Every now and then I would hear a a horror story, which I assumed to be an aberration, someone who stayed sick, had trouble getting over it. Um, But I thought more or less that we had treatments for Lyme disease. We had tests for Lyme disease. I found out that the real truth was something far, far different. Yes, you had far more cases of Lyme disease, as do we in Canada. What made you see the link to climate change? Well, there's a lot of scientific evidence to suggest that ticks are living in places they did not live before. Certainly when I moved to the Hudson Valley in the early 1980s, we didn't see uh, the profusion of ticks that we see now. It's just something you can, you can visibly observe. And that's the kind of thing that scientists have done around the world. Um, there's one scientist who in the 1950s charted how high on a mountain in uh, Eastern Europe ticks could live. And he found them living something like um, 800 meters high. 
40 years later, another scientist went back to see how high up that same mountain or in that area ticks were now surviving. And that scientist found them living about 400 meters higher than before. And, you know, we know the higher you get, the colder it gets. And we also have um, archival maps uh, for the Scandinavian Peninsula, for example, that show ticks living at a certain latitude um, 30 years ago or so, and now they're, they're slowly migrating north. And it's a phenomenon that's playing out around the globe. It's playing out in the U.S., where they've moved um, from New York uh, to, through Maine, through Vermont, and it's playing out in Canada, where we're seeing them, them move north. The long and short is that um, ticks can now live uh, quite happily <laughs> in places they couldn't uh, live before. It sounds like as you dove deeper into this topic, you have accumulated so much information that you had enough to even write a book. <laughs> well, indeed I did. And I began uh, investigating Lyme disease in 2012. And the way it unfolded was kind of bit by bit. By the time I, I left the Poughkeepsie Journal, which is a daily newspaper in the Hudson Valley, uh, where I'd worked for 30 uh, years, I left in 2015. So I'd been working on Lyme disease for about three-plus years. And I, I, bit by bit, sort of peeled the layers of the onion, um, how much Lyme disease was out there, um, how many patients um, had problems getting care for residual symptoms, how there was a shortage of doctors to pay any attention to them, um, how they um, didn't test positive, but they had many, many symptoms of the disease lingering, how there was something called chronic Lyme disease, um, how the, the CDC and the IDSA, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, was handling it and in many ways mishandling it. So I, I, I wrote about many of those issues over time. Um, I even got, you know, um, freedom of information documents um, from the CDC that were given to me by another um, author of, of a, a book about uh, Lyme disease named Chris Newby. Um, that showed that there was this disdain, if you will, for the point of view of Lyme disease patients who believed that they were still sick from Lyme disease. There was a denial of the symptoms that these patients were facing. So I leave the Poughkeepsie Journal in 2015, and I, don't, I didn't really intend to write a book on Lyme disease. There are, as you probably know, uh, quite a number of books out there about the chronic nature of Lyme disease. I, I felt like it almost had been territory that had been covered. But then I began to read more about the connection to, Lyme, uh, to climate change. I personally believed, Lyme disease aside, that climate change was not getting the attention it deserved, that we were seeing major um, changes in our planet, in our environment, and they were only going to get worse. So I felt I wanted to get the message of climate change out there, and I also wanted to to use what I learned about Lyme disease to, to add to it 
And this was a way to do that. There was a connection between climate change <clears throat> and Lyme disease. And so when I, I, I made that discovery, uh, voila, kind of the light bulb went off, and I said, this is a, a, a good way to get this message out, not just to people who already know that Lyme disease is a very, very big problem. In other words, not just the chronic Lyme disease community, but maybe the community at large, people who care about the environment and what's happening in it, and also might live next to a, a place where, where ticks are abundant and are at risk, as are their children. And if people could take one message away from your book, what would you hope that would be? One message from the book, I, I suppose it would be to be careful. I firmly believe that many people are unknowingly infected by a tick with any number of tick-borne illnesses. They go to a doctor who may not think to test them, may test them, but the test may be wrong, and they go on to develop an illness that may, uh, you know, last years, that may um, debilitate them in many ways, that may stop them from working, that may give them brain fog and neurological problems and so forth. So I guess the, the, the biggest takeaway ought to be awareness that there is a problem out there, that we first and foremost have to be vigilant to prevent ourselves from becoming infected, to check ourselves for ticks after venturing out into nature, to be really careful to check our children because we do not have Lyme disease and tick-borne illness figured out. We have a long way to go, in fact. So, you know, be vigilant, be careful, and know that um, we have not in any way, shape, or form solved the problem of ticks in the environment. So you've been looking into the current pandemic that's on everyone's mind, COVID, and what similarities do you see between COVID and Lyme? Well, there, there are many similarities, unfortunately. When I was writing about Lyme disease and I found this tendency to deny that the tests don't work or to deny that people are still ill, I thought it was something that was <clears throat> limited to Lyme disease, that it was specific to Lyme disease. We were a special case. But I'm seeing that, that kind of denial uh, in COVID. Um, you know, it, it, it manifests itself in, in different ways. Um, first, we we're saying that um, it's not aerosolized, it's not airborne. Um, then we're saying that you don't need to wear masks. So there's there's, and, and neither of those things are true, by the way. It is um, spread through the air. We do need to, to wear masks to protect ourselves. So the messages that have been put out there are, frankly, wrong. And the messages for a long time for Lyme disease have been wrong. Another thing is the way that we test for covid we still really don't have a reliable um, point-of-care, easy, quick test for COVID. Um, we don't have that for Lyme disease. 
and we're, you know, 25-plus years into using the standard two-tier test for Lyme disease. That still fails miserably. You know, why are we still using a very poor test? You know, I hope we're not looking at COVID years from now and still relying on a terrible test. I have to think that there's, you know, more incentive to solve the problem of testing um, for COVID. But so far, the way that the CDC managed the testing issue alone, and I wrote an article about this that you can look up on my website. It's called thefirstepidemic.com. Um, you'll see my story about the CDC and the similarities to between COVID testing and Lyme testing. Um, so what I was starting to say is that the, the way the CDC has managed the testing issue from the get-go is no surprise. They made many, many mistakes early on, and this fits perfectly into the um, kind of image that I have long had about how the CDC has managed Lyme disease. Are you aware of any jurisdictions that are taking measures to prevent the spread of Lyme disease? Well, you know, I, I walk a trail here in the Hudson Valley, and there is a sign there that says, um, beware Lyme disease. And there are, are several little, uh, you know, uh, messages there, check yourself. If you get a rash, contact your physician. There, There is that kind of um, educational uh, awareness and, and programming going on, not just in New York, but in other places, too. I write about um, parks in Paris where they have um, signs in French telling people to be aware of ticks. You know, we, we are doing that sort of thing. The problem is it's not being done on the scale that it needs to be done, either here in New York or in France or in Canada or in uh, many other European countries and elsewhere that suffer this problem. <clears throat> we need to bring an urgency to, to Lyme disease and to the problem of ticks. And we really have yet to do that. And that goes back to the way that Lyme disease has unfortunately been framed for many years. It has been framed as an illness that is easy to diagnose, um, easy to treat, easy to cure. Um, it's none of those things. And we're, we're working hard to change that reality of how Lyme disease is framed. But, you know, we still have a long way to go. You know, we have something um, that's called the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, which is meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, regularly. It's now in the era of COVID meeting virtually. So you can watch what's going on through your computer, as you could even before um, COVID, when the group met, you know, in, in person. And it was um, established under a, uh, a law uh, adopted by Congress and signed by the president, which gave money to um, fund uh, uh, the awareness and the problems surrounding Lyme disease. And that group has made some progress in terms of getting the government 
to acknowledge that we have problems and to getting somewhat more money allocated toward toward Lyme disease. I think there was an additional $20 million or so in the most recent U.S. budget. But it's almost like one step forward, two back. There's still a great deal of denial, even among members of this this working group, which is supposed to represent all sides or more like both sides of the Lyme divide. And um, there are still many indications of uh, a rejection of the view of Lyme disease as being such a problem as it is. So, you know, I'm monitoring that. I'm, I'm seeing where that, that, that working group is going. But um, we, we still have a long way to go before we solve this problem, before we make significant progress on testing, on treatment, and awareness. Well, I, for one, am very grateful for all the work that you've done and the awareness that you've raised to this really important topic. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, um, I also am continuing to watch the lawsuit that is moving forward in federal court uh, in the U.S., and it would be a, a, a court in uh, the state of Texas. And um, you may be aware that um, the Infectious Disease Society of America, a number of insurance companies, and a number of the key players who have established this, the, this kind of structure and image and these policies that govern Lyme disease are also being sued. And, and basically, um, the, the lawsuit asserts that people have suffered greatly as a result of these policies. Um, it, it, the, the lawsuit has been filed under um, the Racketeer and Corrupt Organizations Influenced Act, RICO for short. And they're, they're basically alleging, the plaintiffs are, that there is this group, this corrupt group, that has denied them care at great cost to their health, to their finances, to their lives in general. And it's moving forward. Um, it remains to be seen what will happen with it, but um, I believe we're up to four out of the eight insurance companies have now settled this lawsuit and the allegations against them. We don't know whether they've paid any money, but the assumption uh, would be, I think, that um, that that is the case in order to settle a, a charges against you, a case against you. That is often what occurs. Um, and again, this is something that uh, people can read about on my um, website, thefirstepidemic.com. I have a special page for the lawsuit itself which I need to update, though nothing much has happened in the last uh, months, and the page with the actual court filings, you can read the lawsuit and what it says. And the language of the lawsuit is quite stunning in saying that, you know, the plaintiffs um, took money or made money on the backs of Lyme disease patients and the denial of their care. Um, it's really quite an amazing lawsuit, um, and many Lyme disease patients have um, great hope for it. I am aware of that lawsuit, and I would love to talk to you in a future date uh, about the outcomes of it. Okay, we can revisit that. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Have a lovely day. Okay, you too, Sarah. Thank you.
that was Mary Beth Pfeiffer, the author of Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. I found it really fascinating to hear how she contacted scientists who looked at how ticks are evolving and changing their habitats over time. I was also curious to hear about the lawsuit that's happening in Texas, and we will definitely follow up with her in a future podcast. And that's another podcast. Stay safe in the outdoors. Stay safe in the outdoors.